Amen. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Chapter 2. And if you haven't, haven't gotten one of these, or if you just realize you don't have a writing utensil, I realized this morning there's a big basket of crayons in the back, so you can even color uh, in between the blanks uh, in whatever color you want. Um, and uh, there are these in the back. Um, you're going to hate this and you're going to love it. Let's pray. Lord, help me not to mess this up. To even presume to try to take this on. It seems crazy. (laughs) Help us, Lord. Change our lives and our hearts. And renew our minds. Amen. So, Philippians chapter 2, um, so as with all of the, essentially every chapter we've preached on, as you know, Pastor Kirk, because he's the lead pastor, he can cheat. He can, he can decide he wants to do seven weeks from Ephesians 4, um, but we could do half a year from Ephesians 2, excuse me, Philippians 2. But if you're going to take one passage from Philippians 2, it, it has to be this one. Look at verse 3 with me. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. It should be up for you also. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. If America lived that way, the fistfights would be over. Vanished. But now look at this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although Josiah prayed it this morning, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, that's a key, emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That word empty is kenosis in the Greek. This passage is so famous, it gets a name. It's actually a parallel to Isaiah 53, which is called the suffering servant passage in the Old Testament. It's that famous. There are libraries that have been filled about this passage. And the kenosis means, what it means is Jesus makes himself nothing. He empties himself of all of his claims, all of his divine privileges, and he becomes a servant, being willing to even die on a cross. So the Holy Spirit knew that people like us, many of us, would hear the story of the crucifixion so many times, we would lose the awe of what Jesus did. I was uh, saved from an awful life of sin at the age of five, and I was in church before I could hear, speak, or understand our language. I wonder how many times I've heard of the crucifixion. So the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to pin this staggering passage. God emptied himself. The Creator emptied himself. And he chose suffering. The only human to ever actually choose suffering. 
This is the core message of the book of the Philippians, and yet Philippians is all about joy. So this book is a great paradox. At its heart is the kenosis passage where Jesus empties himself and goes to the cross, and its theme is joy. And there's one more thing. Pastor Ali talked briefly about it last week. Paul wrote this book from prison. So you ready? Yes. The book of joy came from prison. Kind of embarrassing to us, isn't it? This is a remarkable thing. Um, The most amazing thing is Paul was glad to be there. If you read back through chapter 1 of Philippians, what you'll find is, this is great, I'm in prison. Because I'm in prison, the praetorian guard has gotten to hear, has gotten to hear uh, about Jesus. And um, maybe sometime we'll be able to come back to this and I'll, I'll unpack what that would have meant. But it almost for sure meant the praetorian guard was the secret service. They reported directly to Caesar. So it almost for sure means that God was ensuring that the ruler of the world was hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's grace. Remarkable. And then he goes on to say, but here's what's really good. Because of my imprisonment, the gospel is going more widely, and the brothers and sisters in the church here in Rome have looked at my imprisonment and my suffering, and so they're more bold, and they're no longer afraid to speak, and they're willing themselves to even go to the Colosseum if they need to. Really, really remarkable. So, uh, just a bit about Roman prisons. They weren't arguing in Rome whether taking cable TV away is cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, Most prisoners that were there for more than a month died of an infectious disease before they even made it to trial. That's a Roman prison. Um, so, so let me be honest, if I were writing this letter from a dark, dirty, filthy prison, having been beaten before I got thrown into my cell, I can tell you exactly how the book would start. This is what I would say to anyone who would listen. I've written it up. Here's the chapter 1, verse 1 from Dan to the Philippians. You ready? Get me out of here. Isn't that your letter to everybody who will take your letter? Now, let's put ourselves in Paul's shoes. Here he was, a faithful servant of Christ who had sacrificed everything for the gospel, and yet God was allowing him to experience great pain. By the way, this will not be preached on the gigantic health and wealth uh, 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 TV programs today that preach to tens of millions of Americans who love to hear, come to Jesus, he'll make you healthy and he'll make you wealthy. Paul couldn't preach that message. This is remarkable. So this passage leads to some obvious questions. If the resurrection of Jesus has defeated the enemy, a, a, a profound historic theological belief by the church, the resurrection has defeated the enemy, right? And if that is true, then why do those who put their faith in Christ still have problems? And why do the forces of darkness still get to wreak so much havoc in the world? So these are the issues we're going to deal with this morning. And I want to start with a key question. Here's your first, here's your first blank. If God has all power and God is love, so notice this flows directly from this, the book of joy from prison, really, 
If God has all power and if God is love, then why does he allow hardship in the lives of his children? Now, by the way, maybe someday we'll do a series, or maybe Pastor Kurt will do a series someday, I'll I'll opt out, on the problem of evil, Um, the gigantic, huge problem of evil, the problem of pain. Today, we're focusing on this question. Why do his children suffer, especially in Paul's circumstance? Why do his faithful children suffer? So before we dive in, I want to make sure that we don't let ourselves off the hook too easily. All of us are pretty good at playing the innocent victim. Most of the time, I'm not all that innocent. And you know what? I don't know you very well, but I know me really well. And I know enough about me to know about you. So I know most of the time you're not all that innocent either. All right? So for those who are truly innocent, feel free. Go early to lunch. Beat the Baptists. Um, So uh, let's be honest. Many of the trials that we face are actually consequences of our own sin, our own lack of wisdom, and our own laziness. Right? Lots of our suffering is our fault, not God's, not even the enemy's. Our fault. But I'm going to set these caveats aside, right, and deal with why God allows us to experience trouble, even when we haven't done anything wrong. The question of what about when we really were innocent? And what about Paul, despite being so faithful to God, is thrown in a Roman prison? Uh, To help us deal with this, we're going to actually move to the Old Testament And so right now, if you want to, this is really easy. Job's easy to find because Psalms is easy to find. Just open to the middle of your Bible. Psalms is gigantic, and Job is one to the left. Um, And we're going to look at, we're going to start with the first verse, actually, of the book of Job. Um, We're going to look at this life, and we're going to see that there are two really big surprises in the life of Job. They're incredibly instructive about suffering in the life of God's children, especially in this case, his actual good, innocent children. So here's surprise number one. Here's your blank. Surprise number one is Job's response to the hardship in his life. So let's start by getting some of the facts of the story. Job 1, verse 1. There was a man in the name of Uz whose name was Job, and the man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. So important. Fact number one, here's your blank. Job was truly innocent. Now look with me at verse two. Verse two. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him, and his possessions were also, look at this, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 50 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men in the east. Now skip to verse seven. And the Lord said to Satan, so here's a conversation. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered, the Lord said, from roaming around on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now, I don't know about you, but if you know any of the rest of the story, I've prayed often, Lord, please, Never point me out to anybody. This, is, um, this, was, this was a high compliment, and it was a horrible compliment to have made about you. Look at verse 9. Then Satan answered and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Look at his complaint to God. 
You've made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side. You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. So look what's going on here. Fact number two, God had greatly blessed and protected Job. Now look at verse 10 again, verse 10 again. You have made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now he challenges God about Job. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him, meaning on his body. Can't touch his body. Can't make him sick. That's what he's constraining him with. So here's fact number three. Satan couldn't do anything to Job. Think of this. Satan couldn't do anything to Job unless God allowed it. Now, this is important. There there isn't an endless celestial tug of war between Satan and God. The devil is a created being just like us. His actions are always constrained by God's authority, so he can only do what God allows him to do. He's always in reflective second position, always overplayed by God's power. Fact number four that flows from this passage, look, Satan predicted that Job would reject God. Look at this. He predicted he would reject God if he allowed his blessings to be removed. That kind of convicts me. How about you? I like God more when things are going well, don't you? And Satan said, you take that stuff from him and he's gonna curse you to to your face. And then fact number five, this one's painful. God intentionally allowed Satan to bring calamity into Job's life. What a mystery. Hmm. And we'll see, it's not just calamity, it's actual real disaster. So look with me at verse 13 now, verse 13. Now it happened on that day when his sons and daughters, Job's sons and daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, that a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Watch this, right in a row. While he was speaking, another one came in and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans, that's just an early term for the Babylonians. The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped. Verse 18, while he was still speaking, Another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And now as we begin to unpack this mysterious story, I want us to notice something. As soon as Satan had the opportunity... As soon as he was given the authority from the Lord, he began to ruin everything in Job's life. It was just bang, 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 and everything good was gone. And this gives us a striking key concept. Here's your next blanks. I know there's a lot this morning, but this is not an easy topic. 
<laughs> Key concept, look at this. If God weren't continually restraining the enemy, listen, if God weren't continually restraining the enemy, we would never experience anything good and all of human existence would be nothing but suffering. You see, this really convicts me. There are so many wonderful things in my life. My family, my friends, my church, my job. I have food to eat. And the only reason I have any of these things is because God restrains the enemy from ruining everything. Do you realize that? If it were not for God's grace, all of, us, our, all of our lives would be just like Job's and the human race would be wiped out in a generation. Every good thing I've ever experienced comes directly from God. And yet, I often whine about life. Why don't I have this? Why don't I have that? Why did this happen? Why did this not happen? So, from the passage, look at the calamities that Satan brought into Job's life. Calamity number one, here's your blank. Satan engineers the simultaneous destruction of, ready, all of his possessions, all of his servants, and all of his children. Now watch this. Look at verse 20 with me, the last paragraph in chapter 1. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God? <laughs> There's something here I don't want us to miss. Look how Job interpreted what had happened to him. And this may be instructive for all of us. Look at what he says. It'll be up there again. Look at the phrase out of the text. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. You realize Job had bad theology on this issue, didn't he? Job was actually wrong. So here, here's your next blank. Here's the correct theology of hardship in everyone's life. Look at this. God gave, but it was the enemy who took away. So let me show you how important this is for believers to understand. During my years in emergency medicine, I'm often the one that makes the call that no parent ever wants to hear. Or anyone ever here. I often inform people of the, the, the sudden unexpected death of a family member. And I've been amazed at the number of Christians and even pastors who have Job's bad theology. Often the spiritual counselor that bereaved people get is this. Well, we don't understand, but this was God's will. So look at the good theology of the book of Job. God gives Satan takes away. The devil is the destroyer. God is the protector. The devil is the killer. God is the life giver. That's what the text actually shows. So Job had bad theology, but you know what's amazing? Even though he had horrible theology and he thought that God had taken away his children and everything else, listen to his amazing testimony. Look again at verse 22. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God? So let's go on in the story. Chapter 2, look at verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, 
Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming around on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, (laughs) what a bummer. Have you considered my servant Job? Well, I just ruined his entire life. Yeah, I think I remember him. For there, look at this, there is no one like him on all the earth, blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. God's testimony about Job was identical after Job had lost everything. This is remarkable faith. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, so Satan's going to ramp it up more. Look at what he says. Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give his, for his life. But put him uh, forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power only spare his life. Then Satan went from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And this is, this is the specialty of infectious disease 3,000 years ago. <laughs> Here it is. He took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Wow. Uh, this is just a rem- remarkable thing. So calamity number two, ready? Write it in. Satan destroys his health. So he's taken his possessions, his servants, his children. Now he takes his health. And if that wasn't enough, look what happens next. Look at verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Calamity number three, ready? Even his wife abandons the faith. So look at Job's situation now. His possessions are gone, his servants are gone, his children are gone, his health is gone, and now even his own wife is telling him to reject God. And yet, look at his incredibly surprising response. Look at verse 10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In fact, in chapter 13, verse 15, we won't turn there because I'm going to give you the text. This is what he says. This is Job's testimony at the end of all of this. Though he, meaning though God, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. So surprise number one is Job's amazing response to the hardship in his life. But as amazing as that is, I find surprise number two even more surprising. Here it is, surprise number two. Here's your blank. Surprise number two is the surprise of God's purpose for allowing the hardship in Job's life. Now, so far, the story of Job makes it very confusing that God allowed such pain. Here's this blameless man who deserves God's protection, and yet he intentionally removes the hedge from around him and he allows calamity. So so we're still left with the question, why did God allow Satan to cause so much pain in Job's life when he could have prevented it? And here, uh, this leads to a, a key concept. Here's your blanks. The reason why God allowed hardship into Job's life, look at this. The reason why God allowed hardship into Job's life was because he had such high regard for Job. What? Look at this. Stick with me here. 
Few of us have ever grasped how incredible God's aspirations are for his children and how God's opinion is so high of us. Are you ready for this? Right now, the God who inspired the writing of the book of Job is wanting to write a great book about us. He's wanting to write the book of Dan and the the book of Joel, right? Well, I already wrote the book of Joel, but you know, Joel. Good name, Joel. Minor prophet. Okay, so the reality is God's opinion of us is enormously high, much, much higher than ours. Let me illustrate it this way. We we all know people who dote on their children. Uh, This made me laugh as I thought of the people that helped me write this, uh, unintentionally helped me write this. Uh, They go around telling everybody their kids are the smartest and the best looking. Don't look around right now. Okay, yeah. Actually, that's because they may be looking at you if you're a parent of a child. Um, they're, they're, They're the top athletes, right? And most of us just politely listen to this hooey. And we let the hallucinating parents blather on and on about their superhero children, right? And then we just, you know, say, yeah, you got great kids. Um, But are you ready for this? God is the most outrageously doting father in all of history. Listen to the the proudest father of all time. Look back at verse 8 in chapter 1. And the Lord said to Satan, I think it's up here, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Notice two things about this passage. First of all, it wasn't Satan who came to God. It was God who went to Satan to show off his boy. Remarkable. And second, it looks like God is just waiting for the chance, just waiting for the chance to announce how well he did on his SAT scores, and how many soccer goals he scored yesterday, and that when he grows up, he's gonna cure cancer, right? It's God, this amazingly proud father, showing off Job to Lucifer. And because of God's high aspirations for Job, you know what he did? He gave him the enormous task that was so big that any onlooker would just shake their head in disbelief. God was actually giving Job the incredibly high honor of taking on the enemy. God had so much confidence in Job that he knew he could allow the removal of his blessings and his security, his possessions, and even his family. And after that, God knew that Job would stare the enemy down with his faith. So now we're ready to see the core of surprise number two. What was God's purpose for allowing the hardship? Here's your blanks. When God allowed hardship in Job's life, he gave him the opportunity, you ready, to defeat Satan by simply being faithful. This is a remarkable precept. And this leads to our application this morning. I don't like this, but it is true. And it is completely consistent with how great God has called every one of us to be. Here it is. Here's your blanks. Because of God's incredible purpose for us, he often allows in his wisdom, think, he often allows in his wisdom what he could easily prevent with his power. 
Yes, he allows with his wisdom things in our lives that he could easily prevent by his power because of his incredible calling for us. Now, as we begin this, I want to pause. There's no question that God could get us out of every tough situation. He has the power to prevent every difficulty we'll ever face. But in his wisdom, he has a big plan for us. By the way, did you know that when someone signs up for the military, they don't send them to the Bahamas for 12 weeks? Where do they send them? To hell. I don't mean that as a curse word. I mean they literally try to get them to quit because they are so hard on them. Why? Because the Bahamas, folks, doesn't prepare anybody for greatness. It doesn't prepare anyone to take on anyone. So this should not be such a big surprise. Okay, you ready? Here's God's big plan. Here's his lofty goal. Here's your blank. Our God isn't content. I didn't know how to say this more nicely. Our God isn't content to let us be wimps. That's his lofty goal for us. See, God is looking for people who will take back territory that the enemy has stolen. But to do that, you know what he needs? He needs warriors who won't cower at the first sign of danger, who won't sit around complaining when the war zone gets painful. Of course the war zone is painful. But here's our problem. Most of us are more than happy to just uh, sit back and be wimps for Jesus. In fact, I'm the founding President and Chairman of the Board of the AAWJ, American Association of Wimps for Jesus. I don't care how high the dues are. I'm in that one, aren't you? Um, Listen, church, life in this world isn't a game. It's actually a battle for the souls of humanity. And the stakes are way too high for us to waste our lives being insignificant. God has no intention of letting us just hang out, waiting to get to heaven someday. He'll never settle for us staying weak, spineless babes in Christ. Now, here's our problem. We love being babes. We like this. We like sitting around getting fat and crying about anything that doesn't go our way. We want to be coddled. You know know what? We want our mama. That's what we love. I hear that testimony over there. Um, so, so, So we need to stop and think. If God wanted to, think about this. This is an important, an important answer and an astounding philosophical Christian view that has been around for a really long time. If God wanted to, he could have destroyed Satan at any time, at the time he did his first rebellion. With a simple word, he could annihilate the devil without lifting a finger. But if he destroyed the enemy solely based upon his power, think about this, he would be playing right into Satan's hand because Satan would be able to cry foul, right? Satan would point out that God had finally resorted to becoming nothing more than a big bully, the big bully, because he has the most power. And in fact, God would be doing exactly what God had condemned Satan for, misusing his power. And now we see one of the greatest of all mysteries. When Lucifer led the rebellion against God in the dateless past, Think of this. It was God's nature that prevented him from destroying the powers of darkness merely by the use of his own unlimited power. 
So let this sink in. This dilemma, why didn't he just take Satan out with his power immediately? This dilemma is the very reason, are you ready? This is the very reason why God created the human race. I'm not teaching anything new. This is historic, classic Christian theology. Uh, he, don't miss this. God's perfect plan to subdue, subdue the forces of evil is to use regular old people like you and me, despite all our weakness, to defeat the enemy. This is a remarkable thing. Now think about how crazy this plan is. We are totally helpless to do anything to the forces of evil. And, and the, the incredible genius of God's plan is this. He overcomes strength with weakness. He destroys hatred with compassion. He puts demonic armies to flight with, you ready? Pathetic weaklings like Job and like us. Now don't get confused. This can only happen when the power of Christ is in us. But what's amazing is when we're at our lowest, some of you came in this morning barely making it to church. Some of you are maybe at the lowest you've ever been. And this is what's amazing. When we're at our lowest, when we feel the most abandoned is the point at which we're most able to deal a blow to the enemy. This is the great paradox. You ready? C.S. Lewis Many of you know the screw tape letters from C.S. Lewis. It's brilliant. You can read it in about two hours. Pick it up. 70 pages long. Two demons. I think I alluded to this uh, when I preached on spiritual warfare. Two demons. The senior t- uh, demon is, uh, uh, the uncle, is screw tape, and he's writing letters to the junior tempter, his nephew named Wormwood. And um, the, the Wormwood has, this, has a charge. His charge is to try to draw this new Christian away from the faith, away from God. What, of course, in, in, remember here, the enemy is God. When Screwtape talks about the enemy, he's talking about God. So in the letters here, he's helping coach Wormwood how to bring this man who now is about six weeks into his Christian life since he's converted, since he gave his life to Christ. He's about six, six weeks in, and you don't get to see Wormwood's letters to Screwtape, but you can tell what he's been saying in his letters by Screwtape's response. And, and, and watch this. There's some significant text here, but it'll be up here so we can follow, and I won't read too quickly. Look at this. Wormwood. So from Screwtape, the senior tempter to the junior tempter, his nephew. Wormwood. This is where the troughs come in. Okay, so here, pick this up. The guy is going into a low point, right? It was all sweet when he was on the mountaintop, when he got saved and all that kind of stuff. But now he's six weeks in and he has to go to work on Monday and, and everything is turning into just life. And so he's gone into a trough, right? Wormwood, this is where the troughs come in. You must have often wondered why the enemy, remember that's God, why the enemy doesn't make more use of his power to be obviously present to the humans all the time. It turns out that he does a little overriding of their senses at the beginning when they first come to know him. He will set them off with communications of his presence and emotional sweetness, which, although faint, seem very great to them. Notice what happens initially. This helps them have easy conquest over temptation at first. But he never allows this state of affairs to last long. (laughs) Any testimonies? Sooner or later, he withdraws, notice, not, not in fact, but at least from their conscious experience, all the initial supports and incentives. 
He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties that have lost all relish and joy. Look at the insight now from Screwtape. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that the creatures are growing into the sort of persons that he wants them to be. Therefore, don't stop praying. Listen to this. The prayers offered in a state of dryness are those which please him most. He wants them to learn to walk, and he must therefore take away his hand. And if the, only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Isn't his grace good? When we just try to please him, he's happy. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring to do the enemy's will, but still intending to do it, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and even asks why he has been forsaken and listen, and then he still obeys. So now we're ready to see God's amazing plan for Job. Job had hit absolute bottom. Satan had taken everything away. At the top of all, and on top of all this, it looked like God had completely abandoned him. Everything in Job's life made it look like the enemy had won, didn't it? His life was a disaster. So it looked like the enemy had won. And yet, despite all of this, he still held fast to his faith. Do you realize how devastating this blow was to Satan? The most powerful entity in the universe, apart from God, was powerless before Job. What an amazing thing. And I love this. It's actually funny. Do you know that Satan got himself into this mess? Remember, Job was just minding his own business, being a simple man of faith, and God had this little conversation with Satan, and he completely missed the fact that God was setting him up. Look again at Chapter 1, verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge about him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Notice, Satan assumed that Job was only becoming, being faithful because he had been blessed. Listen, American Christians. Satan was assuming that Job was only faithful because God had blessed him. So when he asked God to allow him to bring evil upon Job, he thought Job would fold. The devil fully expected to be able to laugh in God's face. But even after the enemy gave Job his best shot, he didn't fold. And do you realize what this means? It means that there was nothing that Satan could do to make Job unfaithful. Nothing. So here's probably your last blank. Here you go, right? Job had delivered the ultimate blow to the enemy. You ready? Here's your blank. Not only had God defeat, defeated Satan, but Job had defeated him. Think about it. In his weakness, in his desperation, at the very worst time in his life, Job refused to be unfaithful. And because of this, Job struck terror into the forces of darkness. At his lowest, in his devastation, Job had become a dangerous man. 
And why was he so dangerous to the enemy? Think of the list. List all the props. See, all of his props were gone. Listen, he stood firm when his possessions were gone, his family was gone, his stability was gone, his health was gone, his friends were gone, his dreams were gone. Job stood firm when everything was gone. And this is one of the most amazing truths about God's children. When God allowed the enemy to bring hardship into Job's life, it looked like he was granting Satan power over Job. Track with me here. When God allowed Satan to get into Job's life and mess it up, it looked like God was giving power to Satan over Job. Do you know it's actually the exact opposite? God was actually granting Job the opportunity to have power over Satan. So look at the words from Screwtape one more time. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring to do the enemy's will, but still intending to do it, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and even asks why he has been forsaken. And then he still obeys. My friends, that's when the enemy has lost all power over a child of God. Pastor Josiah, come on up. As we finish, I want to talk to probably a bunch of us. Uh, Maybe you're here this morning and you're facing some real hardship. Maybe you've lost a job or someone in your family is causing you great suffering. Maybe you're in pain. Perhaps you're facing financial difficulty or your marriage is on the verge of coming apart. Maybe one of your children is causing you great pain or... Maybe you've been mistreated by the people who you thought were your friends. Perhaps you have physical needs or you're facing a terrible diagnosis. Or maybe your spiritual life this morning just seems dry. Maybe God just seems distant. Maybe you're in a valley. Maybe you are in a trough. And God seems far away. Well, if this is where you find yourself this morning, here's the great news. You ready for this? If you're at a low point, if things are really tough, you're actually in the perfect position to become dangerous to the enemy. If, by God's grace, you're willing to simply be faithful, no matter what the cost, then God is ready to use you to defeat the forces of darkness. But here's the tough part. For God to do this in our lives, we have to be willing to be faithful when all the props are gone. In a moment, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together. But we so often take communion without comprehending the gravity of what it means to actually consume the symbols of Christ's broken body and his shed blood. I suspect I've taken communion maybe thousands of times in my life. How seldom I have really let this sink in. We are partaking from this morning's theology. We are partaking of his kenosis when he emptied himself for us. This morning, we've all felt sorry for Job. But while we're arguing about the theology of Job, do you know who it was that went far deeper than Job? You can't go any lower than the cross. Jesus chose suffering willingly.
It's a remarkable thing. So that's why taking the sacrament of communion is so serious. Listen to the clear warning from Paul in 1 Corinthians as we prepare now for the Lord's Supper. Listen to these words, and it'll be up here. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. We are only to take the cup when we are believers and we are believers who have now examined ourselves. It's the two criteria. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. In a moment, Pastor Kurt's going to come and lead us. And, and as he does, I want to challenge every one of us to examine ourselves. And the first question is, are you a believer? Have you fully accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and are you following him? And now is the time to repent and come to him before you take communion, if you haven't. And the second challenge is to believers. Right now, listen for the prompting of the Holy Spirit as you examine yourself, and allow him to purify those areas of your life where you haven't given him complete control. But no matter where you are this morning on your spiritual walk, Do not partake of the symbols of Christ's body and blood unworthily. Pastor Kurt, come on up. As you come, before you take the elements or before, you may have suffering that you want to lay on the altar. The altar is always open. Feel free to do that, Pastor Kurt.